It's a cold, stormy night in Trondheim, a city that sits just below the Arctic Circle and spends much of the year blanketed in darkness. The wind howls. The black water of the fjord crashes onto the shores of this Norwegian town, clobbering fishermen's cottages with relentless waves. One small fisherman's hut begins to give way. The fisherman wakes and scrambles out of his hut just as the waves overcome it and pull it down into their murky depths. The fisherman runs for cover. He runs towards the only structure in town that can withstand the storm. He makes it to the looming wooden doors of Nidaros Cathedral, a monstrous stone monument in the center of Trondheim. He looks up and locks eyes with a looming statue of the great bishop Sigurd. The bishop holds a basket of three severed heads, one for each of his murdered nephews, for whom he sought vengeance until his dying breath. The fisherman throws open the massive wooden door and shuts it behind him, collapsing onto the floor. For a moment, all is quiet. The cathedral expands endlessly in every direction. It seems to swallow the darkness. In the distance, a candle flickers to life. The fisherman takes that as a sign of welcome. Slowly, he rises to his feet. His head is ringing from the cold. His clothes are soaked through. He's devastated, lost. In an instant, the sea had swallowed up the entirety of his life. He lays down on a wooden pew, too tired to think. The rain patters against the stained glass. As the fisherman falls asleep, it sounds rhythmic, almost soothing. For a moment, lying in this house of God, he feels at peace. But outside these massive stone walls, the storm rages on. Lightning strikes one of the cathedral's two colossal towers. It catches fire. The fire quickly spreads down the tower and onto the main roof, enveloping the cathedral in flames. The fisherman is still asleep. He doesn't wake up until the cathedral is laden with smoke and he can barely breathe. He realizes what's happening. This beloved cathedral is burning to the ground. He springs to his feet and throws himself at the massive wooden door, the door that had so recently invited him in. But it won't open. It seems locked from the outside. Running out of time, the fisherman heads toward another set of doors at the far end of the cathedral. But every second, the cathedral fills with more thick, black smoke. The fisherman collapses and chokes. He musters the strength to crawl toward the door, just beneath the smoke, struggling to breathe. Outside, he can hear screams as the town realizes Nidaros Cathedral is burning to the ground. The fisherman's lungs fill with smoke. His eyes start to grow hazy, and his breathing grows labored. He chokes uncontrollably, fighting for air. He drags himself across the floor. He's so close to the door. But finally, 
as the fire overtakes the cathedral. The fisherman's lungs give out. In his last moment, he looks back along the long central aisle toward the high altar, adorned with burning wreaths. He sees the single candle, the candle which sprung to life as he entered the cathedral. It's still alight, untouched by the fire. Then, as the fisherman takes a final breath, an icy cold hand reaches out of the darkness and snuffs the candle out. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. Every other Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Nidaros Cathedral in Norway a church named for a murderous saint. The ghosts of its past still roam within its hollowed walls. If you can't get enough haunted places, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on your favorite podcast directory, as well as on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps the show. The Nidaros Cathedral stands over present-day Trondheim, once known as the city of Nidaros. It's the largest and most important cathedral in Norway, but its thousand-year history is steeped in bloodshed. For this cathedral to rise, the old Norse gods had to fall, gods that the Vikings had served and appeased for centuries, gods that ruled the earth and heavens only a thousand years ago. Here is the story of how the cathedral was born. Night has fallen over Trondheim. Vikings meet in a holy grove, which lies in the forest beyond the city. In the dead of night, they gather around a large fire. Before them, a high priestess stands at a high altar, already stained with blood. A Viking leads a small sheep to the high priestess, who lays it down on her altar. She takes a large cutlass, and slits the sheep's throat. A sacrifice to Odin, the highest Norse god. Then the most cruel and gut-wrenching part of the ceremony begins. 81 slaves are marched into the grove. A young Viking moves to the front of the circle, anxious to see what fate awaits them. This is Olaf, a young Viking king. Olaf watches as two Vikings lead a slave to the base of a tree. Then, to Olaf's horror, they wrap a rope around the slave's neck and pull. The slave, a young boy no older than Olaf, has no time to scream. His neck is jerked as his body is pulled off the ground, closing his windpipe. He kicks and struggles, his piercing blue eyes bulging out of the skull. Behind Olaf, the slaves have begun to shriek, pray, fall to their knees, begging for their lives. But they are meant to be sacrificed. They will find no mercy. Finally, in a fleeting act of kindness, a Viking takes the boy around the waist and pulls. The boy goes still, his body hanging limp. One by one, 
the 80 slaves are murdered, hung from tree branches until dead. Their screams echo through the wood until the sound is so faint it feels like a memory. And finally, the forest is silent. The ceremony, the bloat, has ended. A sacrifice to Odin, so that he will grant the Vikings good luck in battle. The Vikings make their way home, but Olaf lags behind. Olaf would soon be one of the most ruthless and feared Vikings in the Western Hemisphere. As he stood in this grove, looking out at this forest of carnage, the limp bodies swaying in the breeze, his thirst for blood was born. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now, back to our story. Just two years later, at 17, Olaf's career in piracy began. He built a fleet of 90 ships and sailed for France, ready to bloody his sword. In Normandy, a young woman wakes before dawn. On mornings like these, she loves to walk to the water's edge and watch the sun creep up over the horizon. But on this cold, gray morning, what she sees fills her eyes with horror. In the distance, a fleet of almost 100 ships sails towards land. She recognizes the bended bow of the ships and the dragon's head at the mast, their serpent-like tails jutting out of the water. These are Viking ships. She sounds the alarm, but it's too late. The townsmen run to the shore to meet the Vikings and are cut down in an instant. Their blood stains the beach, turning the sea foam red. Some who charge the ships are pierced through and disappear beneath the waves, dragged down to a watery grave. The Vikings close in on the town, a horde of savage, bloodthirsty pirates. They raid every home, killing without discretion men, women, children. It makes no difference. Some are taken as slaves, a fate far worse than death. The young woman sees her home burned to the ground. The Vikings pilled anything worth taking onto their ships. She hears the cries of her family as they're cut down where they stand. She takes off running down the beach to the paths that wind between the craggy cliffs. The Vikings will never find her here, or will they? Behind her, she hears heavy footsteps. She runs so fast, her lungs feel like they'll give out. The path before her rises quickly uphill. She presses on, but the footsteps are closing in on her. Far in the distance, she can still hear the villagers' screams. Tears run down her cheeks as she pushes blindly forward. She skids to a stop. Just ahead is a thousand-foot drop down the side of a cliff. Nothing but rocks and rough waters below. Nothing to break her fall. Behind her, the footsteps had also stopped. The woman turns to see Olaf and one of his men, Ivar the Boneless, standing just ahead. They began to close in on her, their massive broadswords scraping against the ground. 
Olaf smirks at her, a murderous gleam in his eye. The woman looks over at the cliff behind her, then back at the Viking pirates. She knows what they'll do to her, and she won't let them win. She takes a deep breath and jumps off the cliff. The impact doesn't kill her, not immediately. She lies amongst the red stained rocks, ribs shattered, bones broken, struggling to breathe through lungs filled with blood. The last thing she sees is Olaf staring down at her from the cliff's edge, smiling. As one poet writes, the Irish fled at Olaf's name, fled a young king seeking fame. After months of terrorizing the British Isles, Olaf was tired. His resources were depleted and his men were exhausted. In need of respite, he retreated to the Scilly Islands off the coast of Cornwall. One morning, as Olaf lay resting, he overheard talk of a local fortune teller who possessed the gift of prophecy. At this, Olaf perked up. He was eager to hear his fortune told. After all, anyone who lives such a volatile life could use a little foresight to his advantage. Olaf set out on a small rowboat towards a rocky coastline on the other side of the island. He paddled until he came to a small bay. There, hidden in the rocks, barely visible during high tide, was the mouth of a dank, wet cave. He tied his boat to the rocks outside and ducked into the cave, wading through the water that had pooled on the floor. The cave smelled of salt and rotting fish. Then he saw her, the soothsayer. She was old, with gnarled hands and frayed hair. She sat in near darkness, expectant. She had been waiting for him. Olaf sat before her and asked her to read his future. A thin smile crept across her pockmarked face. Her eyes glazed over as her inner eyes searched the cosmos. Her breathing grew shallow and strained. As Olaf waited, the sun outside began to set. The shadows in the cave grew long, and he began to see things move in the dark. Then the soothsayer spoke. She began, Thou wilt once become a renowned king and do celebrated deeds. Her breathing grew more labored and her face apprehensive. You will soon suffer a mutiny among your men. You will be wounded and carried to your ship on an oblong shield. And after seven days, you will recover and be baptized. The woman gasped and closed her eyes, then came out of her trance. Olaf left the old woman unnerved. A devout pagan, he laughed at the thought of his own baptism. <laughs> but soon, all that the hermit had predicted came to pass. Upon landing back at camp, Olaf was ambushed. The man who had been unhappy with their shares of the plunder charged him as Olaf made his way to the beach. Those still loyal to him saw what was happening and ran towards the melee, swords drawn. For hours, a skirmish dragged on as the Vikings cut one another down until the usurpers had all been slain. Bodies of Viking brothers littered the beach. 
The tide came in, and the ocean began to reclaim the bodies. It wasn't until later that Olaf realized he had been pierced through the side. He was bleeding out onto the beach, shocked and fading from blood loss. He collapsed. For nearly a week, it seemed as though Olaf might die from fever or infection. And in that fever, he was plagued by strange dreams. He was in a place more barren and desolate than he had ever seen. In every direction, there spanned miles of nothing. He was alone, but could feel the presence of someone always standing just behind, just beyond his peripheral vision. A hot breath was always on his neck and tickling his ears. He was being watched by things he could not see. With every step he took, he felt more isolated. He felt his home drifting farther away. And every time he tried to remember his mother's face or his wife's laugh, they evaporated from his memory. Then Olaf started to burn up. Every appendage grew so hot that he collapsed to the ground, writhing in pain. Then his body turned ice cold and left him longing for warmth. The torture was endless. Olaf knew he was in hell. When Olaf finally awoke from his fevered state, a week had passed. He immediately returned to the old hag and asked to be baptized. Olaf felt knighted by God. After his baptism, he sailed for Norway. Olaf was welcomed home as a beloved Viking king, which made his next move seem all the more traitorous. He outlawed paganism and sent Christian missionaries to convert the masses. But the Norse gods did not go quietly. The people resisted. They swore that their god Odin would seek his vengeance on those who banished him from his home. When peaceful effort to convert the Vikings failed, Olaf turned to the only tactic he truly understood, slaughter the masses and burn their villages to the ground. Olaf spent 12 years slaughtering his own people until they finally rose up against him and dethroned him. Over the next two years, Olaf amassed an army in an attempt to reclaim his throne. But Olaf should have paid more attention to the old hag's prophecy. He would only be king once. And by trying to reclaim his throne, he sealed his doom. Olaf was a violent murderer, but the Christian community he started would remember him more favorably. Looking for a way to legitimize their new religion, Olaf's converts were in the market for a saint, and the father of Norwegian Christianity made for an excellent poster boy. They buried his body at a bend in the river and built a small chapel over his corpse. One morning, the summer after Olaf's death, a blind man made his way to the grave of King Olaf. He began to pray and wash his hands and feet in the river. He rubbed his eyes with water, then shrieked. Where before there had only been blackness, light was beginning to creep into his peripheral vision. He wiped his eyes again, and when he opened them, the world around him began to come into focus. 
a world that had been lost to him since he was a child when disease took his sight. The man shrieked with joy. Olaf had performed a miracle. Word spread, and soon more people from surrounding villages came to Olaf's grave to pray. Within a year, two more miracles were performed at his grave, and the Archbishop of Nidaros sent word to Rome. A year and five days after his death, Pope Alexander III canonized Olaf and set off a frenzy. Pilgrims began to pour in from all over Europe. Soon, plans for a Goliath Cathedral were announced, and by 1300, the Nidaros Cathedral had risen up over Trondheim. But from the onset, it seems the Old Norse gods planned to exact their revenge on this shrine to Olaf, the king who banished them to myth. Just 27 years after its completion, Nidaros Cathedral went up in smoke. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Now, our story continues. Nidaros Cathedral, tall and foreboding, looms overhead. Its tall towers seem to pierce the night sky, as they have for over a thousand years. Once a mighty place of worship, the cathedral is now a perfect place to hunt for undead relics of its bloody past. For years, stories of ghostly haunts have clouded the cathedral in mystery, and you can't help but see for yourself. You throw open the heavy front door and stare down the endless nave enveloped in darkness. Near the high altar, a candle flickers to life. It casts a merry glow as you step over the threshold. The candlelight disappears for a moment, then reappears. Someone has passed in front of the candle. The door swings closed behind you. You are not alone. Engulfed in darkness, you listen for the faintest hint of movement. Behind you, another candle is sparked to life. It casts a soft glow on a staircase, descending down into blackness. You follow the stairs leading down. The temperature drops as you sink below ground. The stairwell leads to a dimly lit crypt. You wander past rows of tombstones, a varied and fascinating collection. Most are broken, either from age or because their materials were used as building supplies for the walls of the crypt itself. Then, at the end of the crypt, you rest your eyes on the main attraction, human bones encased in glass. You inch closer, wondering if these are the bones of King Olaf himself. You kneel beside them, your eyes fixated on the way each spinal cord is separated from the column, how the skull is no longer affixed to the neck. The crypt is growing colder. A cold draft chills your bones. As you look up, two cold, ice-blue eyes pierce the darkness. They glow, following your every move. They're human. They're undead, and they're full of murder. 
you're not the first to lock eyes with this vengeful haunt. This ghost has walked the halls of Nidaros Cathedral for centuries, but never revealed himself until roughly a hundred years ago. Let's go back to that moment, shall we? The year is 1924. Marie, the bishop's wife, sits in the front pew of Nidaros Cathedral, attending a church service. The priest stands before his parish, singing. The parishioners take in his words and bow their heads to pray. But Marie turns her attention to the archway of the cathedral. There stands a medieval monk, his bright blue eyes locked with hers. She stops, looks around. She's the only one who can see the figure. She watches in horror as the monk turns his ravenous eyes on the priest and begins to approach him from behind. The monk makes his way towards the pulpit, walking through a choir member who shudders with cold. The monk stands behind the priest and begins to choke him. The priest's face turns red as the parish begins to shriek. Only Marie can see the monk. His two pale hands encircle the priest's neck as the priest struggled to break free. Then the monk looked at Marie again, this time raising his chin. She sees that his head is severed from his neck and a thick blanket of blood is oozing out of the open wound. She looks away and suddenly the monk lets go. The priest chokes and gasps as air rushes back into his lungs, feeling ice cold and sharp. He and the other congregates look around for an explanation, but see nothing. It's clear that only Marie can see this apparition. She stares at the psalm book in her hands, terrified. But as the priest breathes and the congregation settles, Marie looks up again. The monk is back in the archway where Marie first saw him. He's young, handsome even, and drenched with blood. He removes his head from his neck and tucks it beneath his arm. The severed head winks at Marie before disappearing into thin air. Marie was the first to see the bloody monk of Nidaros, but she was far from the last. Some say that late at night in the cemetery, he stalks the hallowed ground, watching over the dead. Perhaps it's his way of protecting his friends in the afterlife. Or perhaps he's hoping to expand the graveyard's population. There are those that have reported that he'll happily converse with any soul brave enough to walk with him at night and take off his head upon request. But be careful. He's known for wringing the necks of people he dislikes. Perhaps the monk walks between this world and the next, because his life of prayer was never enough to squelch his violent temper. Or perhaps his spirit is the result of an act more sinister altogether. It's assumed that the bloody monk of Nidaros was one of the pilgrims who traveled to Trondheim during the 14th century and decided to stay and take up a monastic lifestyle. 
So what sin could a devout monk commit to be kept from enjoying a holy afterlife? What demonic force traps him in the cathedral, forcing him to walk the grounds and the cemetery for all eternity? The monk's anger and viciousness is palpable. It would seem that he longs to drag other spirits to his realm, to trap others as he has been trapped. The marks on his neck leave clues, but perhaps before his throat was cut, death came for him another way. They said she came in the dead of night. She came for every house, eventually. If she came with a rake, at least some of your family would survive. But more often than not, she came with a broom, a symbol of death for the entire house. Some say she was an old woman, a shriveled hag who foretold the coming of the Black Death. Others say she was the Black Death, bewitched to take on human form. Her name was Pesta, and she wandered Scandinavia in the 14th century, the plague always on her heels. She moved in the shadows, her skin covered in scars and boils, rats scurrying at her feet. A ghost or a walking corpse? Perhaps something in between. As the plague ravaged Norway, the sick raved about seeing her. They claimed that late at night, she would creep to their bedside, her flesh rotting off her bones, to delight in the pain and suffering of the sick. Of course, these hallucinations tended to subside after consuming henbane and poppy extract, but Pesta's stench still seemed to hang in the air. When she came for Trondheim, she was especially ruthless. The growing population became a smorgasbord to feed her. Half the city fell prey, loaded onto carts and dragged to the streets, destined for mass graves. The Black Death killed nearly half of Norway, leaving Trondheim devastated. The monks, who had spent much of their lives quarantined, were spared. They watched as their beloved city succumbed to the disease. Unable to watch the suffering, the monk of Nidaros begins visiting parishioners. He saw their rotting flesh covered in scars and boils, how they shrieked and rambled with delirium. Trondheim is overcome by the stench of death. The screams of the sick are driving the monks mad. The piles of bodies being dragged through the streets, the putrid smell of burning flesh as mass graves were set alight. It was unbearable. And one morning, the monk of Nidaros wakes up in a cold sweat. A shadow falls over his room as the candle on his bedside table flickers to life. He looks to the door where an old hag hovers in the doorframe. In her hand is a broom. She stinks of rotting meat. Her breath rattles. She inches closer to him. He knows her face. He's seen her before in passing, but now she's come for him and his brothers. They will be the last to go. The monk cannot bear to go through the pain and suffering he has seen so many times. He cannot let death have his suffering. And maybe 
despite knowing the consequences, he prays God will forgive him and runs a blade across his throat. The city of Trondheim is more than a thousand years old, and Nidaros Cathedral is one of its oldest buildings. Renovations began in the 1800s, slowly restoring the cathedral to the stunning shrine that it is today. The city has built up around the church, which still honors Norway's patron saint. As much as King Olaf was a man of brutality, Saint Olaf is also a celebrated symbol of national unity and protection. While the Bloody Monk is the cathedral's most famous resident haunt, there are other oddities that cannot be explained. One such phenomenon can be seen in the basement. There's a room with a ceiling so low you cannot stand in it upright. It was once used as a tomb for prominent figures from Trondheim, although nowadays it's kept locked and barred. But when the room was still used as a tomb, people began to report seeing rose petals scattered across the small room's floor. Once a week, fresh petals appeared in this room as the wilted petals vanished. Though this room has not been a tomb for quite some time, the petals still appear on occasion, with fresh ones often taking their place. No one has ever identified the person who scatters the petals along the floor, or verified whether it's a person at all, because the door is kept locked. Only someone with a key could gain access, and no one has ever come forward. The symbol of St. Olaf is a rose, a symbol of protection in Norway. Could these rose petals mark the place where Olaf's bones were reburied so many centuries ago? Perhaps they're meant as a promise to protect Norway for generations to come. Or perhaps the red petals are left as a reminder that this place was born in blood and will someday drip in blood once more. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. Don't forget to subscribe to Haunted Places on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every other Thursday. We'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Aaron Lan. I'm Greg Polson.